I'm now recording. Please re- start again and repeat. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's not like not like we, we talk about anything interesting. A whole wasted 10 uh, seconds. So. No, the things we spoke about before were genius. It would have been, would have been a breakthrough. <laughs> 10 seconds might be uh, 50% of our recording this week. Oh. So, or you can salvage the MP3 from recording my end <laughs> of the call. So, Kai, I saw that you released a new update. I've been there. Mm. Um, Woo! You mentioned that it was really cool uh, that you submitted this on Friday for review. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, uh, I was quite impressed with how quickly the App Store review team worked uh, on, on a Friday Friday afternoon. I think I submitted uh, uh, 1.2.1 at around 6 p.m. Woo. And it was ready for sale uh, about an hour later. So it was going in review within 10 minutes and then approved 40 minutes later. That's really weird. Yeah, I think that is <laughs> definitely cool. uh, the 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 record for quickest uh, review I've had so far. Do you think that's because it was a Friday afternoon specifically? <laughs> there is no one else who is yeah, no one else working after five. So absolute review team is just sitting around waiting for someone to hopefully submit a new build. Yeah, yeah. I don't Wait know. A second. I don't know. Wait maybe. A second. You know, like the other half of the world is still at work. <laughs> the Australians are starting their day. Yeah, but this Asia was a Friday. Day. Europe is yeah, ending its day. Ah, oh, yes. Saturday if it was morning. a Friday, it's Saturday morning. Are you saying that Australians work on Saturday? Australians are really dedicated to our work, and we go to work on Saturday. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But do we really think that reviewers are all in that time zone? <laughs> of course, this? everyone is in the center. Okay. Of all right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I no, but no matter really what, cool. I was, no, but really like cool. the other time zone they would have been in is like there, there's not really any other time zone. What about Hawaii? Are they two hours behind? Yeah, maybe they have like but, one reviewer in Hawaii who's just finishing up things in late <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. Either way, I don't know. I'd love for like I'd love for the book one day to come out from an. App Store reviewer. Yeah, that would be interesting. 20 years. Yeah. This is what life was like for 10 years. And <laughs> I know there's been bits and pieces. Like, I think there was one uh, feature article sometime about maybe like five years ago. And it was like, ah, oh, yeah, this is all the crap we have to deal with as App Store reviewers. Oh, but man. there wasn't much insight into how they work. It was more, this is the stuff we see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, think, I think that could be interesting so to, to seem- hear. Maybe once the App Store's dead. Um <laughs> In, in like 20 years when we all, I don't know, our phones come with every app imaginable. I don't know how, anyway, however the future works. But when the app store is <laughs> dead, to get somebody who worked as an app store reviewer we, to share their story. And I think we would all buy that. We book. keep the topic of how the future works for next week's episode. Yeah, tune uh, in for that. Um, um, I also don't know, this was actually one of the few times when I submitted the exact build that was already approved for test flight before to the oh, App Store. Okay. And I think before that was not really considered like that. I don't think there was any, or at least I didn't notice any impact on review times based on whether it was already approved for test flight external testers. But I wonder if that is an... I mean, that to me seems like a relatively logical optimization if if the review is very similar between the test flight one and the App Store one, that if it was already going through a review, that that process might I be mean, quicker. I mean, that would if you sort of make build. sense. Um, but that I would almost think that... The, I feel like that would make the um, test flight release, uh, test flight uh, update review process a lot longer because it used of to that, be though it used to like be a uh, pretty much the same amount of time as a normal no way app store submission. E- even back when an app store submission took long no, no 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 but when they went down to like the 24 hours 48 hours kind of time yeah. span um i mean i've never had an 
external test flight submission that was any quicker than the average time for an app store submission. It was very, very in line, the two, always. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. Which sort of makes sense. But then you also have the, if you have the same build number, but you submit a new, or if you have the same version number, but you update the build, it's usually not being retested for test flight. Yeah, you're right. Then that would mean that if you end up submitting that store, that one to the actual app store, mm. maybe the review process would be a bit longer mm. if they didn't spend time on the incremental builds for the same version. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. It's a good question. But I do know it is far more likely to get a build through test flight review than it is the app store review. So I don't know. I kind of assume somebody's looking at it again. I know I've had a lot more rejections from the App Store review team than the Test Flight review. I mean, it's probably the same team, but you know what I mean when mm. it's going through mm-hmm. App Store review versus Test Flight review. Do um, you? But yeah. Do you guys know how much they actually look at this? I I, I never really um, like knew the process. Do Do they actually run your app and look at it? Visually? Usually on an iPad. <laughs> yeah, all of okay. the screenshots that I've gotten back from. A rejection in maybe the last year. They're they're all on an iPad, mm. and it's what really strange because. Do you think that's because they want to be able to test all apps on the same device? So even if if there would be an app that only runs on an iPad, they want to be able to test, like just have that one device. Quite possibly, but it also maybe, yeah, because then they wouldn't have to switch devices. Yeah, exactly. They could just use the same. Mm. The iPad also defaults to the smallest screen size. For the iOS or iPhone apps, that's also mm-hmm. a good way of using a relatively new hardware device to test the smallest possible screen size for your apps. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it defaults into the SE screen, basically? It used to even be the 4 and it 4S. Used, yeah, it used to. Be, so before that change, I got a screenshot back from AppReview with like a button that was clipped. So usually they don't do QA on your builds, but I got something with like a button was clipped and like you can't have this. And it was like, okay. Um, so what was my solution? I really needed to get this bug fix update out. My solution was to add an if check to check the width of the screen. And <laughs> if there's, if the screen was a certain width to just not display a certain UI element so that the button <laughs> could be shown. That was my really hunky five seconds. Cause I'm like, realistically, the, the app isn't, doesn't run on any iPhones that still have that, mm-hmm. uh, 320 pixel wide. Oh no, sorry. Mm-hmm. Might be height. Whatever, check for height. So that that iPhone 4S style screen, mm-hmm. the only people affected by this is going to be on iPad. Why? I, it just it wasn't worth my time going in to fix this this layout bug. Um, so that was the solution. It was very frustrating too because it was a bug fix update for a pretty critical update um, that got rejected for that. And mm-hmm. it's like this this has been the same in you know probably the last twenty versions before. But it is what hmm. it is. Speaking of App Store stuff, though, what do you guys think about pricing for for universal apps between iOS, iPad, and macOS? See, this is something... Uh, I've been... This is similar to fa- family sharing in some to some extent, I think. How do you mean? Uh, I think for develop... Like, okay, like the... The outcome is similar as for family sharing. So I think um, for a developer, I always feel like it's slightly unfair uh, that you have something like family sharing because I'm always sort of feeling like I should give money twice to this developer if we're two people in a family. Um, And I think that's the same thing here. And I think many people would put a lot of effort into actually making a dedicated iPad app or a dedicated Mac app. And I think it's a little bit 
frustrating that that would only be a one-time purchase. But now you're kind of mixing two things, right? One one is definitely more. At the moment, it is very common for, for very good iOS and macOS apps to have a iOS iPad app or I iPhone, iPad app, and then a macOS app. Hmm. The uh, iOS one is usually cheaper. The the macOS one is usually more expensive. All right, let me let me rephrase that then. I think for for me the interesting thing is, as, do we assume that there will be universal apps across all of Apple's platforms after uh, f- for iOS thirteen and macOS ten dot fifteen? Are we at ten dot fifteen then? I think that is a safe assumption. But then the interesting thing is, at the moment, then going forward, there are two options, right? Either you make all your apps more expensive, because even if you only use yeah. it on iOS, you still have to pay for the iPad and the macOS app, right? That's option mm-hmm. number one. Everyone pays more. Or you still try to split them up, but they're yeah, all running on the iPad. That's, that's still possible, right? If I have... You can separate... even You can decide whether or not you want to release something as a universal app... Um, or if you want to have it in two separate bundle items. I mean, we don't know right? for macOS, but you can definitely. Yeah, do you that can do for that for iPhone and uh, iPad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it would make sense if something like Universal App for all three platforms are is available. But then don't limit the developers to like don't force the developers to do that. If people feel like, but they I wonder if that will. More. I wonder if that will lead to prices dropping for macOS apps. Two now. Yeah, quite possible. Okay, so can I put on my Apple hat for a minute and think <laughs> about this from Apple's That perspective. sounds like one expensive hat you're wearing. Very expensive, <laughs> modeled after uh, Infinite Loop. And yep. not, what's Apple Park? I, yeah. It is I an Infinite Loop, as, but it's Apple Park. I, I thought, thought you had that a this actually. One. I thought it actually looks oh, yeah. like an Apple. Oh, it's too creative. <laughs> no, okay. So I think from Apple's perspective, Apple want people to use Marzipan apps. Because the idea being that, oh, suddenly their apps that were only available on iOS are now available on the Mac. Apple obviously wants people to use them. Now, I think it makes sense for if you have, if you've bought an app on iOS, let's say, I'm going to take a, take an example that I don't think will probably make a Marzipan app, but let's say Tweetbot. Now, mm-hmm. the reason they probably won't make it is because they have a very good native Mac app and ultimately a native Mac app is going to beat a Marzipan app. But let's just say, let's assume that Tweetbot uh, supported Marzipan on day one. Mm-hmm. I think that's good for Apple because then suddenly you, as somebody who has purchased Tweetbot, see it in your Mac App Store as a as a purchase thing that you can download for free, mm-hmm. I guess, sort of free. Um, and then I think the question of how... I mean, so, okay, from a developer's perspective then, if you want to charge for uh, separately for a, a Marzipan Mac App, firstly, if you want to charge separately for a Mac App, maybe it should be native. Um, just, I think that the idea of Marzipan is to not add too much work to to the development. But I mean, realistically, but, mm-hmm. there will still be extra work. Yeah, exactly, because you still need to there, make there sure that the sizing work. works. And ideally, you want a separate layout. So I think this should actually encourage you to add more work, which will help on the iPad as so well. This is where my my third and final point from my <laughs> Apple perspective gets into it. But just for the for the second point, I think we will probably see different. Uh, different apps like with different bundle identifiers being published to the Mac App Store separately. Kind of like some companies don't have a universal iPhone and iPad app, but instead they have uh, iPad. Sorry, a dedicated app for uh, iPhone and a mm-hmm. dedicated app for Mac. Uh, sorry for iPad. I think we're going to see that probably with with the Marzipan stuff for the Mac App Store. It wouldn't surprise me. But then, so my third point from an Apple perspective here is 
So, there's sort of two parts to this. This is the headline feature for Mac OS. Mm-hmm. Sorry, for iOS developers this year. Mm-hmm. And in the past, we've had things like shortcuts. We've had uh, AR stuff. We've had, you know, there's we have redesigned for iOS 7. There's usually a bunch of things that... A bunch of new APIs that developers get access to over the summer that they work on. And yes, some developers charge for major updates and some don't. And I imagine we're going to see it pan out similar to that. But I think from Apple's perspective, this is the major thing that developers are going to have to do this year. So it's just a normal few months worth of work. Like it's it's not uncommon to what we've had in past years. It just so happens that that work involves supporting another platform. And then to answer the question of, well, devs should be paid for their work and they absolutely should be. I think Apple's solution is subscriptions. If you have a a loyal subscription base where you're bringing in X dollars a year or a mm-hmm. month or whatever it might be, then for you, you're just as a developer or as a development team or however you work, you're working as you normally would for those three months, implementing new features for Apple platforms as you normally would, and you're sustaining that through the subscription revenue and you'll but probably get a spike in September for supporting new types of apps. But I think that that from Apple's perspective, and I'm not saying that I agree with any of these three points, <laughs> but these are just, if I'm thinking about this from uh, how Apple probably see this situation, then I think they think subscriptions are the answer, universal apps are the answer, and this is just what developers will have to do to be on the latest thing or to support the latest and greatest system features uh, for iOS and macOS this summer. I say summer, but it's actually winter, but time zones, time, not time zones, hemispheres are a thing. Anyway. Um, yeah, there's six months time zone different. <laughs> Thanks, Kai. Appreciate it. Um, so your assumption would be that um, subscription prices stay the same, but there will be a an additional platform that will be supported by that but app. But do you see it? Yeah, and do you see it sort of like a separate subscription that's dedicated to Marzipan apps? No. So, like, if no. you have this subscription, it's a bit more expensive, but therefore you get all three apps. Otherwise, no. you only get something else. So, is it just? Is it, it's more I, like Apple's way of marketing it towards developers to sort of encourage developers to in, like uh, to combine their Marzipan apps with um, subscriptions. Basically, look, I think so, and I think that. Right now, it's not possible to do, say, an in-app purchase or a subscription to unlock the iPad version of an app. Either the app, when you download it, supports the iPad or it doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, you could give a subpar experience on the iPad and hide that behind an in-app purchase, but you can't say, I don't want this to run on the iPad unless the user has mm-hmm. bought in-app purchase or subscribes. So, I think, and I think the whole idea of Marzipan is to have the same app everywhere, not to have a different app with the same name everywhere. And that's what Mac apps have been until now. And I think that's fine. And I think if you want to take that approach and if it's a separate charge, and I'm not saying that it's I'm not saying that it's wrong to charge separately for a Marzipan app or to have a separate subscription, but I'm just thinking that's how Apple are going to think about it. That if you want to build a fully native Mac app, then that's where you can come in and treat that as a different app with a different business model and things like that. And I look I think from an idealist perspective, like from the Apple ideal, a Marzipan app isn't a whole lot of work. It's not... I mean, you already... Ideally, if you're, uh, is, your iOS though. app is a good citizen... It, uh, I know it is, but I'm just saying like from, from Apple's perspective, like if your app is a good citizen, it's supporting size classes and you have uh, an iPad version but at the they moment, don't. you support the iPhone. No, I know, <laughs> but I think that from Apple's perspective, Marzipan is meant to be fairly straightforward to... Um, to work with. But and yes, there'll be new APIs like, for menu bar, yeah, I was just about menu to say bar that. actions, and there'll be touch bar things. So there will be 
there will be additional work, but that's just like adding, say, shortcuts last year to your app. There's additional work. You don't get it for free, but it's just part of being an iOS developer. Anyway, not saying I agree. Just need to reiterate that. But that is me t- putting on my Apple hat, saying some stuff, and now I'm taking it off and we can discuss. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it was heavy so you- or either very uh, sticky, depending on how this thing is designed. I didn't get the the gold version. Okay. Just the sport. So, <laughs> okay. it was light-ish aluminium. Um, but then that means, based on that 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 reasoning, um, it will be really hard to compete with like traditional AppCAD apps that are like, if we take things as an example, right? At the moment for their macOS app is 50 US, 50 US dollars. Um, oh, on a complete, like a slight, slight, slight tangent. I was at, I was just out yesterday in a crowd and a really old guy in front of me pulled out his iPhone and he had things on his iPhone. I was like, that's pretty cool. This guy, old bloke, you know, wouldn't expect him to be too comfortable with technology, but he had a third party (laughs) app that he paid $15 for on his iPhone. But that was pretty good. Mm. So anyway, people do buy apps sometimes. Did you you thank him as a developer? I didn't know. I was walking past pretty quickly, but I did see. And okay. I, was, I was pretty impressed. Mm. Anyway, sorry. Resume. In general, a $50 app, right? Most subscriptions that I've seen for iOS apps are more in the dollar two or three a month, right? Yeah, yeah. But that will even... I mean, realistically, I don't think if we have a crazy influx of all the to-do apps that are currently available on iOS to, to come to the Mac, yep. basically, as you're saying, for free, as in not a lot of work. So same price, whatever, either... Uh, free with a dollar subscription, or even if they're saying we charge the same two ninety nine for all yeah. apps, that just means realistically that Mac app prices will also come down to iOS. Yeah, level. I was gonna say it is a bit difficult for some people to pay fifty dollars on them for a Mac app or and fifteen for an iOS app. Uh, but realistically, what do you mean difficult? I think people can't really justify that. But they just paid like. Two thousand dollars plus for for the computer to run exactly. that app. Exactly. So shouldn't they get the apps for free? <laughs> um, I just think. I mean, in general, what is this this, this know, miracle? Know, people know. find two thousand dollars on the street to buy like a fancy MacBook, but then they're like, oh, fifty dollars for an app? I would use I know, every day. No, nah, I, I completely that. agree with that, and that's what I want to get to. Like, I feel like. It makes sense for companies to charge this much for an app, especially if it is a dedicated Mac app. It's not an Electron app. They're not pushing this out on every platform. It's not just a, like a web wrapper. It's a really nice app that they put a lot of effort into. And I but think have you used any exist like current Marzipan apps? They don't feel like very exactly. nice apps. Exactly, and that's the and problem. I'm sure a lot of work did go into them, but they don't feel like it. They don't feel valuable. But that's the exact problem because I think if they can't charge as much for their marzipan apps on on a Mac. I think it's not. I don't agree. It's not. I mean, we would we would make assumptions based on on last year's frameworks for that. I mean, we don't uh, okay, know. Okay, what I'm worried about though, like what I want to get to, is that I'm I'm worried that the fact that it is so easy to port an app to the Mac App Store means that uh, developers might not charge extra for it, or that might actually put down the prices that. Um, used to like the, the cost that you used to have on the app store so it might be potentially a lot cheaper to buy an app that's a marzipan app and i think that could be quite unfortunate for developers who need to use AppKit for certain reasons i think because in I general think people won't the general public won't understand the difference and won't understand why some apps are so much more expensive than i think in general assuming that there isn't any enforcement on Apple's side, we will for a fact see macros apps becoming a lot, at least the ones that are being uh, marzipanified, they will definitely be cheaper, assuming it's just the same system that they used for uh, universal apps before. 
because they will just maintain their price level. A lot of people won't put a lot of effort into making them more Mac-like. And therefore, it's like whatever the minimum is to make it work, we'll we'll see a boatload of those on the Mac App Store um, after whenever September when macOS 10.15 ships. Right. Realistically, yeah, yeah. we saw that for iPad already. Right. A lot of people yeah. just recompiled as a universal binary and didn't do anything. Of course, and why wouldn't you? Yeah, it's like the, yeah. that's the like absolute mini- minimum you can do, and some people will definitely go for that. Other people yeah. will have more expectations for the quality of the applications, but realistically, and I think there's a reason. The- sorry, there's a reason why there are so many more apps available on iPad than on Watch, for example, because in order to make a WatchOS app, you actually need to yeah, put a lot of effort in. And, exactly. Yeah. But I think realistically, we'll definitely see that. And those price, those apps will probably not need to charge more either. Because, I mean, it's it was essentially no effort to get there. Exactly. And that's what I'm worried about, that that will, de- will deflate the App Store, macOS App Store in general. And ideally, it would be cool if you could actually, as a user of the App Store, differentiate between those two different apps. And but I, get I mean, them, there's no like, way that will happen. Apple just, will not I mean, we, try we, we to make sort of marzipan apps uh, second class. Yeah, but we did sort of talk about this um, before when um, Apple released their or announced their game, gaming um, server or service, mm-hmm. that it would be Apple cool Arcade. if... Uh, Apple Arcade. That it would be cool if there could be sort of like a premium type of store for apps as well, or like maybe like a recommendations app, which is all the apps that Apple um, like ha- has recommended in the past. I don't know. What do you mean? But you're right. Like if they could have like a separate section, like native apps or apps that we... But I don't... That, why would Apple release a new thing I know, if they, they just wouldn't. want to scrap? No, I know. I know they wouldn't. I mean, that makes no sense. It doesn't. So do you think everyone just has to deflate their prices? Uh, no, I'm I'm just wondering. Like I, I, I even if we assume uh, Marzipan apps will be just as good or better than um, AppKit apps are at the moment, I think that's. I mean, I that is obviously the direction that um, Apple would like to go. I don't. I mean, we can't judge whether they got there before yeah. probably June or pro- potentially September depending on how much we'll see about it. But assuming that they match the quality, um, I just think... Oh, I, th- I think that's a big assumption, though. That sure it is. Yeah, I was also wondering... Will match but it's, it's hard, right? If we want to argue about prices, we can change all, all dials at the same time. If we assume yeah. the quality of apps can be the same, I... S- I, I I would still be surprised if prices don't go down. But Even- why would it need to go down, though? Wouldn't developers feel like the Mac app is currently having more uh, more expensive apps? But Maybe they can charge the same. It doesn't work for universal apps because at the moment... Oh- on average, macOS apps are the most expensive, so iPad apps in the middle, and iPhone apps uh, the lowest. So right? Maybe they won't be universal. Yeah, but assuming that there will be universal apps, usually what happens is that the prices for those apps are falling to the lowest common denominator, which would be the iPhone pricing. But I do feel like a way for Apple to get around this, to not cause too much friction in the Mac OS development community and... Um, like potentially make people upset about the price drop for those apps um, would be to just not allow them to be universal if they actually have to be separate but, uh, bundles. Why would Apple do that? Uh, because then you wouldn't have to deal with the problem with the app prices on the Mac App Store being deflated. Because They're only they like 12 to. people though. <laughs> oh, but I think Apple, I feel like in last week's, uh, last week, uh, last year's WWDC, I felt like they mentioned something about macOS, like native apps not going away. Or am I making this up? No, you're right. 
Mm. You're right. They're not going away. Yeah. So that's why I feel like if they don't want it to go away, I feel like they would want to encourage macOS developers to stay native for as long as possible when it's necessary for them. And then they should somehow help them to be able to get the same income as before. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand that reasoning. I just think if we see an influx of apps that are, that are universal from iOS, no matter what, I mean, you know, no matter what, there will be more apps in the Mac App Store. Mm-hmm. And more supply means prices will most likely drop. And especially if that supply already comes in on a lower price. And sure, there will potentially be people that pay more for certain apps. But I think in general, if you have more supply of lower priced apps, how can you compete? If if Even if things would uh, compete with an app that is slightly worse in, in all aspects, but they're selling the app for $1.99, it's hard to compete with a $50 app. Yeah. Like, no matter how you slice it, I, I think as long as we see universal apps, prices will be... It will be difficult to maintain $50 pricing. Yeah, but that's my argument for why they wouldn't make them universal. Because then they could keep on having a higher end price uh, for macOS apps, and the people who but are that doesn't make any sense for Apple. We're, we're kind, kind I, of... I don't know if Apple care about the race to the bottom. No, I mean I, I think they do see subscriptions as a solution. I, I, I just think for but... Apple, it makes no sense not to be universal because obviously that's ideal. You buy an app once, whatever the price might be, you buy it once and you use it on all your Apple devices. It's like perfect for like this kind of ecosystem, right? If you have an iPhone, you, you get benefits from having all Apple devices because you buy something on any of your devices yeah. yep. and will be available on all the others. That that makes from an ecosystem and Apple infra- like ecosystem perspective makes a whole bunch of t- sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Everything you buy, you get everywhere. Why wouldn't Apple no, want I that? No, I know. Second yeah, of all, Universal we already point. have, so that that seems to be definitely a direction. The only thing I see is for third-party developers who currently charge higher prices for their macOS apps, I think it will be hard. And I don't know if if subscription will be able to um, capture enough of that because realistically, um, first of all, I don't think subscription is the solution to everything because I hear more and more people like non non tech people saying that they're that they're getting fed up with having to subscribe to everything and also re- realistically I don't think I don't think we will see any subscriptions that are based on if you want to subscribe to the macOS app only it's this amount if you want to have two then it's that and if you yeah. want to have all three it's I think that. that's making so it realistically if you already have an iOS app and your subscription pricing is is $2 just by adding the Mac, I don't think they will increase the prices to $10 a month instead. And even if you're only using it on iOS, you now had a 5x increase on your subscription pricing. So realistically, the considering that the iOS is the biggest platform, it will probably continue to drive the largest amount of, of users. And therefore, pricing most likely, at least in my opinion, will be optimized for, for that device. So it's a, it continues to be at $2, but now you also get the Mac OS app as part of that. Yep, and I'm afraid return, you're right. In return, that makes it really, really difficult, I assume, for for current premium macOS apps to maintain their $50 plus pricing. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, uh, yeah I'm afraid that you're right. But I don't know how this will go down with um, the current macOS developers. I mean, 12 people will be upset, but it's just... <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, wonder if that is really... Those 12 people will be upset and then they will stop making Mac apps. Like, is that really what we want? I just wonder if that's... Like, I, I was curious if you two see a different path. Because- Unfortunately, you convinced me. <laughs> it wasn't really... 
that wasn't really my intention. It was just this well, is where I stand, and yeah. that was what I kind of landed on when I, I know, thought about I pricing. But I, I, it makes a lot of sense, and I think you're right. With I don't think they should have a a separate subscription for those different platforms. But I think because it's one way not even going to be allowed. Yeah, first of all that, but also one way. There, there might it might still lead to apps having more subscriptions because I think one way of getting for macOS developers to get around this deflating price point would be to lower their prices and then add subscriptions for their apps because I think that's a little bit easier for 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 users. They're not it's not as hard to swallow, I guess. Um, so it might still lead to an influx in in uh, in subscriptions. So I think that could potentially be a thing. Um, and that might make macOS developers happy, but I think overall, I feel like they're going to take a hit from this. And I'm worried that that will mean that great quality apps won't be developed anymore. And, uh, companies like, um, Fantastical and like, or, uh, the company behind Fantastical and behind things, uh, could potentially just drop the Mac app development and just go for universal apps because for them, it might not be worth it. Mm. And that would not be great because I really like those apps. I mean, unless be... we get really, really good marzipan apps. And yeah. the, the idea is development that's easier and cheaper yeah. and therefore yeah. passing then, that saving on to customers. Yeah, then they would be so much more efficient. I'm not saying they're not now, but they could put all of their power into the one uh, code base. And that would also be really good. Unless we see, but, I don't know what it would be called, Apple Office Building. That sorry, what? <laughs> uh, kind of like Apple Arcade. But for 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 non-game apps, where yeah, I know it's, okay. it's a great name. Uh, just try to figure uh, out Apple productivity, maybe. Yeah, I mean, arcade is kind of like a place, right? So it's the Apple anyway, um, where you're being paid by time usage. So you pay like a subscription for all your uh, paid WeWork. apps, uh, um, and you're being paid by time that users spend with your oh, app sounds... so then there's a yeah. value in you making a universal app because mm. then people can use it on all platforms all the time they spend on it no matter what platform counts into your your usage time also works align uh, kind of is aligned with um uh, screen time on on a mac because they're already building that anyways yeah. to 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 calculate the time you're spending on stuff and then they can use that for like uh, Apple developer uh, income calculations. I'm so against any business model that's paid by time. I know, I know. Because then, because <laughs> yeah, then yeah. where's the incentive? I mean, your incentive is to build a Netflix competitor and yeah. not yeah. a utility <laughs> app where that's the thing. a measure like, of success should like, be a yeah. user is command in and out in a short amount of time. Your remap command queue to be full screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the problem. Like, Dark patterns. Yeah. Facebook might build a native app if you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You know, but I, I do think that's a problem because like some apps are great because you don't use them often. Like, there, like um, there are certain apps that you might just want a reminder on when it's really critical. I know, like, for example, your Dexcom app, uh, Zach, I think if that would be charging by the time you look at the I app, mean, that's it, not great, ideally, but it's a critical app. Ideally, Dexcom wouldn't have a paid app in the first place. No, no, but I mean, like, yeah, but, there but are I see, critical I see apps. The, point. the idea of that app should be to be in and out as soon as you yeah, can, yeah. as opposed, or or to use it exclusively through extensions, such as mm. the Watch app. I can give you one really good example for that is uh, an app called Rain Parrot, which sends you push notifications for when it's going to rain. Yeah. The app does have weather reports in the app, but it's not necessary. I never open the app. The app, the, the sole way that I interact with Rain Parrot is through the notifications. And yeah. 
surely if you have a system like that, they're going to come out unfavorably. Yeah. But also, yeah. I mean, there are also positive sides. Uh, if you look at like workout apps, it would encourage uh, workout app developers, like Strix Workout, for example, if Quentin would fi- figure out a way of making you work out a lot more, he would make a lot more money. So there's also... <laughs> yeah, but you don't necessarily open the workout app in order for it to be efficient. Yeah. Like, for yeah, example, it's... something like Streaks, um, which is also by the same developers. I think that one's very effic- it's very efficient for me. And, yeah, you, you uh, usually I, go like, in and out just exactly, to Exactly, I go in and up. out to do it. So then you almost, like, I, I basically check off what I'm doing every day. Or and even from the it, notification, right? You're, yeah, you're just yeah. Saying, yeah, it is completely. Yeah. And, it's, like, and oh. it's a really good app. It really encourages me to actually work out more to keep that streak. And I think maybe, like, it would be great if you could get paid by that, too. Like, mm. returning customers. Like, yeah. how many days in a row do yeah, you use? But this is way too complicated. Yeah. Like for, for for a revenue stream, this I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder how if there will be any acknowledgement that if we just add macros as a universal, mm-hmm. that that potentially has impacts on on premium apps at the moment. If there's <laughs> anything that Apple's yeah. doing to to counter that, no, it's it's very interesting of a discussion to have, and I think unfortunately, it's. It's going to be good for some people, but I think that, as you say, the 12 developers that are on the Mac App Store might be coming out worse off, but potentially that would also help them to focus on their on their iOS efforts. But if you're a company that doesn't actually have an iOS app that only needs a Mac app, um, that could be problematic. Mm. I mean, um, there, there, there will be think... some, like BB Edit, for example, very unlikely to get a iOS app. Yeah. Um, what I mean, B- sorry. What was what does BB Edit do? Like a text editor, similar oh, for yeah, Audio yeah. Hijack that we're using for recording, yeah. right? It's very unlikely that. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of iOS uh, competition that would enter. Like, there are definitely still premium apps. Yeah, that are very Mac, that are Mac specific or that are unique to the Mac based on the Mac's capabilities that iOS doesn't have. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I those, think maybe... those are all right. But if I would make, like, I would just, if I would make a premium app that is currently available across all three platforms and I charge more for a Mac App, Mac app Store um, build of that app, I would now feel a bit more nervous than I would yeah. have a year ago. Yeah. Um, which I mean, even even if if there is a good solution, it's definitely a problem because I mean, uncertainty. It, the last year of uncertainty about what happens on the Mac and Mac App Store pricing is probably not encouraging additional effort in development of AppKit apps right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I understand that. And I think that was one of the downsides of Apple. Uh, maybe not the downside, but for Apple, it might not have been great to release it. Talk. I mean, talk unless about it there was the intention of saying, "Look, we're we're going towards UIKit everywhere. Yeah. Don't spend too much time on on AppKit apps if you can avoid it." Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, doesn't apply to BB Edit. They're probably not going to rewrite everything in UIKit to then be able to uh, release across all three platforms. But if you're currently considering to make an AppKit app that could have been written in UIKit, probably mm-hmm. focus on UIKit one and 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 then use Marzipan to bring it over. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, uh, it will be very interesting to see. Um, I think overall people will be excited once this is released, but I do think some people might be worse off. I mean, I'm I'm definitely excited just because it's it's going to be a big movement in in the macOS platform. I don't know if it will be. Uh, unequivocally positive but it's definitely one of the most interesting changes on the on on macOS we've seen in in a very long time yeah that should be their marketing slogan 
Well, anyway, that was a long way of saying the App Store review was really quick today yeah. or yesterday. All right. Clips sharing. <laughs> Clips, the app that Apple put in the App Store like two years ago, no one's ever used. Um, so now Clips sharing has a new meaning. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is just me naming something. Uh, I don't know what to call it, um, but... Um, I think maybe some of our listeners, probably many of our listeners, listen to ATP, um, where Mark Arman spoke about his new feature that he released. We know for a fact that, is that a disease? We know for a fact that most of our <laughs> listeners listen to this show uh, in Marco's Overcast. Wait, do they actually? Yeah. <laughs> I had such a good introduction to the topic, guys. Now you're going on the side tangents. Um, so, as some of you guys might, as some of... Some of our listeners might already okay. know, or people who listen to ATP. Um, app, uh, Apple, uh, Marco has released a new um, update quite recently, which includes the sharing of a podcast clip, uh, which is basically a snippet of the clip. And it's actually a really cool feature. So uh, basically what you can do is to um, share a certain part of a podcast that you like, really want uh, think is funny or think is very on topic. And it's a great way to actually... like distribute a clip of a podcast rather than having to send a whole link and send a timestamp. And I think often it is harder to share something like a like a podcast and recommend podcasts to people because like I personally never feel comfortable asking my friends to listen to me talking for one and a half hours because maybe they won't like it. So if you have a specific clip that you can share with someone, it gives people a great idea of what the podcast will be like and more people might subscribe to a podcast that they haven't even heard of. And I think this is a really, really cool way of spreading the word of a podcast that you might like. Um, this is not me trying to encourage everyone to share uh, this podcast, but I wanted to but talk if about that's this. that's your takeaway, go for it. Yeah, go for it, go for it. Um, but I wanted to basically just point out that I think this is a really cool feature, and I really appreciate that Marco spent time um, putting this into the app, and I think it is a really cool feature that has really been missing from podcasting in general, and it's something that I found to be really useful as a podcast like as a podcaster as well but, but just in general it's really really difficult at the moment to because we we, we kind of tried recently right to to promote or to share more about the podcast on different platforms because we have a good amount of listeners but they're all or i would say probably half of them are somewhat related to us so we thought it might be fun to try to get or not related as in family but friends and yeah we have three extended. listeners <laughs> <laughs> they're all our mothers <laughs> um but like people that we that we've met in person yeah um, or interacted with on twitter yeah yeah so uh we thought hey maybe maybe instagram is a good place to to get some more people to potentially listen to a few episodes of the podcast but it's really awkward to share on instagram either audio only or or pictures because i mean our podcast isn't necessarily particularly picturesque. Hey, talk <laughs> um, I mean, it's basically three people sitting in a in a room with headphones on. It's not really. I don't not know. Really you have your content. back. You have your back turned on me. You, <laughs> you don't know what I'm doing over here. So it's it's just a. I, I started playing around with like trying to cut snippets in Final Cut Pro to to find a good mm. snippet and then figuring out what kind of image to overlay. Maybe the the uh, the um, cover artwork, but then you also kind of want something that is moving at least to to keep attention for people and to make yeah. sure that it works uh so then i realized that is just too much work to do for 
like a weekly episode of our podcast. Um, someone and I, we were actually talking about what we could do to somehow automate that all the options were a bit awkward or taking too much time. And then Marco released an update that yeah. does that. And what I really like with this exactly is the that way we would have wanted. Yeah, I guess it's really good for us to be able to share the show, but it's also really good if we listen to a show that we want to share with other people. Because we're very active on, on Twitter and other social well, media. Well, we weren't because this feature was <laughs> Um No, but I really appreciate this. And I think probably this is probably something that Marco might have been encouraged to do because he felt like... Um, what is it called? Big money entered podcasting. Yeah, and big money entered trying podcasting. To, uh, take over the be the Facebook of podcasting. Exactly. Yeah, and I think um, realistically, it is good to provide a pla- a way for uh, podcast creators to share their um, share their podcast because um, YouTube YouTubers have YouTube for it um, on like uh, Medium and like blog forums and stuff like that you have a way of distributing those things but if you don't have a single platform to share your podcast or a way to share a podcast um, it's easier for people to go to platforms that have more of uh, more money involved in it and I think more people uh, must be encouraged to to go to bigger networks if they are um, having a potential of sharing spreading their um, spreading their podcast easier in that way but I think this can actually make people stay independent as I mean podcasters. in general it's not like it's not revolutionary. There were services where you could upload the MP3, pick a section, and they would generate something similar to mm-hmm. this. This is just very easy and free. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we don't make any money off this podcast. In fact, we paid a lot of money <laughs> uh, to get all the equipment by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't really willing to pay another couple of dollars for every episode just to put something on Instagram or Twitter that is actually yeah. uh, moving. So it's just also um, just a good way, especially for people that might not have a budget to promote their podcast to to still make it easier to to show us parts of what the show is like because otherwise i mean our podcasts are an hour and a half long and there are other podcasts that are long it is more of a commitment to listen to to a podcast that's an hour and a half long than listening to a 15 seconds clip and then potentially deciding to want to listen to more of it right so i just think it's it kind of helps with creating things that are designed to be shareable and if it's free and convenient to do yeah i almost feel like this is this feature is hoping to achieve some kind of viar- ah, podcast like viral. I don't know how to say the word. I have virality. Really read virality. Yeah, some kind of podcast vir- virality. I can't say that word. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's what it's going for. Like you get some really funny 45 second clip that everyone is interested in. And it's probably a good thing to be able to share certain chunks of podcasts because, I mean, up until now, my solution anyway has been maybe to send a timestamped link to a particular Mm -hmm. point in the episode. And then I get, like, that can be a bit awkward because it's like, hey, press here, listen for 30 seconds. Like, you have to tell the person that you're sending it to exactly what to do. Whereas with something like this, you can just very easily send someone a 30-second clip. And it's it's a type of feature that I really hope other third-party podcast players um adopt because it's something that overall benefits it benefits podcasts and like yes for a while it's an overcast exclusive so overcast gets some attention but it's the type of thing that i think overall is beneficial to to the industry and to make podcasts more shareable um and i mean the alternative to to sharing a time step 
time-stamped link for a certain show is just linking to the whole episode. And then the expectation that somebody who doesn't know what's going on in a podcast listens to a whole episode, you know, be that an hour, hour and a half, two hours, that's a a big commitment to ask someone to do that. Um, Whereas if you see, if maybe if somebody listens or sees a few clips from the same podcast a few weeks in a row, then they might think, hey, I should check that out. Mm-hmm. So, it can sort of be a nice subtle way to to market a podcast, but also to let people who enjoy podcasts share their favorite parts of a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I know that at least when I started editing this show, I don't really do this anymore, but I would there would be a couple of funny clips that I would sometimes just pull the audio from and save them into a bloopers folder that we have in our shared drive. <laughs> and I thought that was always a really funny... Um, a nice sort of thing to... I don't think I've gone back and listened to them, but if we ever wanted to, there's some nice, like, funny clips in there. Mm. And I think that, that this can sort of serve that purpose. And, you know, occasionally a podcast is funny. Occasionally, or hopefully sometimes a podcast is funny and <laughs> or, or particularly interesting. You know, somebody can express a certain idea really concisely and then you could, you could share that. And this can sort of serve that purpose in allowing people to sort of, whether it be saving for themselves or saving to share with other people, just really good small snippets of shows that mm. can be interesting. I and just hope it doesn't I mean, turn whole- into the opposite of like, look what kind of idiot Kai is yeah. and what kind of stupid thing he said before the Mars Well, oh. I was thinking the opposite, so not necessarily the opposite, <laughs> but I was thinking something else that I hope it doesn't turn into and that's that people optimize for the one minute clip. You know, you don't want... I mean... I, if, uh, if hypothetically, if clips for podcasts become the way that podcasts go viral and the way that things are shared... Then you know, essentially, if there became a a meme type of format around podcasts, then you would hope that you don't have a bunch of shows optimizing for that kind of viral share. But I mean, that's hard, right? If if you, I mean, if you can create really good content that is forty five seconds long, I don't mind, right? If that's like, I yeah, think the good that thing is, is that it's not dragged out by itself. Like, I think one problem with, for example, YouTube is that um, certain. YouTube is often recommended to make a YouTube video that's between 10 and 15 minutes. And I think that can sometimes not be great because some people might drag out the content because they want to reach that specific mar- set that specific limit. And I think if it's that long and people stretch it out, that might not be as ideal. Whereas I think a shorter clip could potentially just provide either funnier content or maybe just a bit more a quicker insight to the content. Um, but I would hope that people might, even if people would optimize for this, that they would ideally start out having that quick one minute chat, but then go deeper into topics, like use it more as a deep dive and encourage people to listen to the deep I dive. I don't even know how to optimize for. I have optimized this whole episode. I don't know. <laughs> Everything I say is less than 45 seconds and absolutely <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be a clip show type thing for a podcast i mean that might be a fun podcast like a podcast that is really hilarious one minute segment that's sort of what um you look nice today was a bit like it was always very short and very sort of heavy heavily edited for it to for the purpose of snappiness and i think that made the show really good Mm. Yeah, I just think the kind of quote tweeting type of thing a lot of people use for personal attacks like taking a single tweet you know whenever yeah, like you take taking something it out, of, out context, of context yeah and then say something about it you can make almost everyone look bad <laughs> at some point throughout their life even if they didn't mean it and i mean but podcasts, the good thing with a lot this... of value i get out of podcasts is often 
to hear how people get to a solution or even for someone to say something that is they're, that they're not happy with and then correcting to come up with something that they actually mean to say. And I feel like there's often value in maintaining the the less polished phrasing to then if eventually come to the more polished actual reason. But if you have a very easy way of taking the bad part out of context, I'm just potentially worried either people yeah. taking taking those things out because they w don't want that to be quoted or people taking that to then make that that person sound worse than they actually intended to be yeah but i think i think that's why it's good that it's that marco sort of added this uh image to it as well i think people will understand that it is within some it context a, yeah. and it is within a podcast Maybe. it's not just a random clip of something we overheard kai say um like people will understand that it's in some context some sort of context um so hopefully that helps for that. Um, but I do think, in general, I have been thinking a lot about how to sort of share podcasts and how to make more and more people, um, like I guess, aware of the podcast. Because I feel like we do put a fair bit of effort into this podcast. And I enjoy chatting to you guys. And I'm hoping that other people find it enjoyable. Um, so I think it would be nice if more people get to get to enjoy the podcast. And I've been trying to get to enjoy. Yeah, you're get confident. <laughs> it's. I would love if this provides some type of ben, like some some type of. I would love if people actually get something out of this podcast. Um, so I've been trying to share it more on uh, Instagram, and I think um, I don't know if this is the perfect place to do it, but I think having something like a clip of the actual audio will will really help for that. Mm. And especially for th three uh, marketing and competent people, this is a <laughs> way of making it easier for us to to at least to try to to do marketing for our mm. hobby project. Yep. No. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> uh, you okay? He doesn't like that you insulted yeah. him of saying that he's not good at marketing. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't know. It's it's a good feature. I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope it's not something that dies out. Like, you know, we've seen a bit of sharing happening this week, but hopefully we continue to see that as it's no longer a novelty. But even even just, I think even if it's just for the people making podcasts to, to have an easier way of generating snippets to share them. Like we usually have an announcement tweet. Adding like a 30, to, 30 second to a minute clip to that announcement tweet, I think makes it easier for people to get an idea of kind of the atmosphere of the episode. I think that alone is worth it. Even if no no podcast listeners use it to share segments at some point, even if it's only for creators to make it easier, like podcast hosts or, or people having podcasts, to, for them to have an easier way of generating short segments or short uh, insights into the podcast, I think that alone is worth it. Yeah, no, good point. Mm. Cool. Cool. Okay, should we talk about the things of the week that we like? Sure. All right. Yeah. Haven't done this in a while. We did last week. Yeah. <laughs> did we actually? Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> Was it like the two weeks before that we didn't? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because we did all the airplane stuff last week. Yeah, mm. exactly. You the, did seat The guru. booking your flight, the picking your seat, and the thing to watch on the plane. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're so on theme with those things. <laughs> um, let's see how it goes this week. I don't think there's a theme this week. <laughs> Um, I can start. Um, sure. So for this week, I pick a 
a website or a server. I think it's a website. Um, it's called Bitly. So bit.ly. Um, Bitly is a way for you to, well, this sounds like a sponsor read. Um, so this uh, website basically provides a, you can make an account there and then you can generate smaller links, like shorter versions of links that you want to share with people. So if you send people a link to something and you want to make sure that they actually read it, you get, um, you also get statistics if people click on this link. Uh, I found this to be quite good if you have a website that leads somewhere else. Like, for example, if you have a website with a YouTube video link and you might want to see if people actually watch the YouTube video, um, you can use something like this to see uh, if people like it. And it's also so much nicer than just saying uh, the website URL, which tend to be really long. Um, you can also use it if you have like a document that you want to share, which tend to just have a random random uh, letter combination attached to it. So it just makes it a lot more readable. So if you want to share a link that people clearly understand what it is for, um, you can generate a mini link of it in Bitly. And you can see, like, uh, I guess you have a collection of all of the links that you ever generated. Um, so it also makes it easy for you to um, like see all the things that you like to share with people in one place. Um, yeah, I think I think it's cool. Um, who said you, you aren't good this? at marketing <laughs> <laughs> isn't this like this tool like a marketer's dream <laughs> yeah like I, I in general don't like to like gather analytics on everything but if there are things that you think are important for people to read or something that you um, might send away to someone and you you're really caring if people actually look at it <laughs> it's very useful for if you have links to projects you worked on in a resume yeah. So you can actually see whether people click on the links and see yeah. which ones people care about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's also a really good way of doing of using it. Um and again, a resume looks quite cluttered if you put like those random links to a longer like really long links. I think ideally if you have your own website, you should put your own website in in a resume. Uh, but if you have something that's an external source uh, that you can't control the URL for, this just looks so much neater in a resume. Um, or on on your own website. Hmm. Have, have you guys used this at all, or some similar? There are many. Uh, there are a few different services like this. So uh, I'm sure other people have heard of this. Yeah, I've sort of had two uses for it. Um, the first is just tidying up links for um, maybe uni or work related reasons, where just links for random things are very long and you're sending an email to somebody and you don't really want to mm-hmm. paste in two lines of a URL. Um, I don't... like My problem with Bitly and the reason I don't use it more is just because it's nice, I think, when you're sharing something with someone, particularly if it's more informal, to have... Uh, to, for them to know where they're going. Um, you have a Bitly yeah, link, you don't yeah. know what website it's going to take you to. Um, some of some of these problems are solved in services like iMessage, which replaces the URL if you if you send a URL with a preview of the website. So mm-hmm. you know the URL could be thirty characters long, but you wouldn't know that receiving that. And yeah. it's then it's nice to know what website you're going to. In an email, I wouldn't yeah. press on a Bitly link if it wasn't from somebody I didn't know. Okay. Like if I just got an out of the blue somebody email, you uh, did I know even. Yeah, if somebody yeah. I did know, yeah. it's like yeah. I can probably assume they're they're you know, sending it for a good reason. But yeah. Uh and, and it is nice to have that, you know, shorter, shorter URL. Yeah. Uh and the second reason I've used Billy, and I don't I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but it's when doing certain things with um shortcuts or previously workflow. 
because if you have, if as part of a workflow or a shortcut, you want to open a website, then if that website deep links back into an app, you can't visit the web page for that. Now, the specific oh, example I'm thinking sense. of is I had a shortcut previously, a workflow set up to take an MP3 file, save it to my iCloud drive, and then open the Overcast uploads page, which I think is overcast.fm forward slash uploads. Mm-hmm. And if you try and press on that link from somewhere in iOS, it will take you straight into the Overcast app. And of course, from the Overcast app, you can't actually upload any audio files mm-hmm. to listen to. So, I needed to like I needed to end up in the browser in some, some way or another. So, I ended up generating a shortened bit.ly link that opens like that links to overcast.fm forward slash uploads, opens it in Safari, and then that redirect doesn't prompt Overcast to open, but instead I get the web page as expected. So that was sort of a, a secret use case for Bitly. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> also, whenever you have universal links, if you um, tap and hold, you can say open website instead of open in Overcast, and your iOS device will actually remember that. So from then ah, onwards, nice. all the links will actually go to the to Safari instead, and and, and that ah. stays the same for all links until you use the uh, do the same thing again and say open in app name. So there's That's definitely pretty there good. some I kind of yeah, there, your device. I should give that a go with the the overcast link. I wonder if it applies when opening it from a shortcut too, but it mm. probably does from what you're saying. So mm. cool because it's also kind of useful because for most links you still like depending on the website, but usually you still get in the top the open in. Uh, kind of bar coming in yeah, from the top. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to prefer going into Safari and then having the option to use the open in instead. But yeah, if you if you tell your device that you want to open in Safari, it should remember that and kick you into Safari instead. Or as a developer, awesome. you can also just say, if you go to a link like overcast.fm slash uploads, that doesn't do anything on your iOS device, you can just say that is not a link you want to kick you into the app for. We don't want to make extra work for developers. They're going to be hard at work on their Marzipan apps. So yeah. They're going to save all that time because they're not making native apps. <laughs> um, yeah, just that's done. it. You should charge for every every um, every link you add into your app. <laughs> ah, mm, you've cracked it, Marlon. Yeah. Million dollar idea. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I can get some VC for this and then, then we'll be fine. <laughs> you want to go next, Zach? Sure, I can go next. Cool. This sounds very interesting. My pick is a podcast. And I don't think any of us have picked a podcast before. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, so the podcast is called My Millennial Money, which I just got to say, like, it, it obviously sounds like a boring finance show. Um, I think this sounds quite interesting. What? So, one of the, just a slight backstory. So, when I listen to podcasts, I, I am not a person who listens to podcasts first and foremost for the content. I mean, obviously, that is a very important part of the podcast, but I tend to prefer shows with people who have personalities and, you know, who <laughs> I, I tend to enjoy listening. Like, I tend to enjoy listening to a show because of the hosts, not necessarily because of the content. Um, I've tried many shows about things I'm interested in where I just didn't 
uh, think the hosts were as interesting as some other shows and I'd rather stick with the shows with interesting hosts. Similar reason I don't really like many NPR shows and, and the like. But anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. So for this, this is a podcast I came across because interestingly enough, my bank up, the one that I've mentioned a few times before, sent an email like they do like a, a monthly uh, update that I'm subscribed to and they said that a couple of their co-founders appeared on a podcast and so I listened to it and the, the podcast is an Australian show called My Millennial Money and I listened because I was interested in the co-founders of Up. And they gave a pretty good interview, but I was drawn to the podcast because I thought that the hosts of the show were actually quite interesting on that episode. So then I've since gone back and uh, explored some other episodes. And I kind of went through a couple of days this week where I binged, listened on the bus and just went. Because the shows are usually between about 20 and 40 minutes. So the episodes are between about 20 and 40 minutes each. And so it's easy enough to get through. And I've gone back and there's been a few dozen episodes, but I've gone back and sort of cherry pick some of the more interesting ones about topics I'm particularly interested in. So it's just a, it's a podcast by some uh, financial advisors who, who don't take themselves too seriously, which is good. And they talk about uh, money. I don't want to say issues, but I guess they give some advice and they talk a little bit about money and uh, it's sort of the topics are centered around things that would be relevant for millennials. So I think there was an episode I listened to on Afterpay and they shared their thoughts on that and uh, their opinions on uh, responsible spending and things like that. There was an interview with someone who works for Osco, which is a a real-time payments platform that we have in Australia. I think that's been running for about a year now. Um, so that was really interesting. So I've gone back and listened to a few of those. Anyway, this particular show, it's again, like the topics might be somewhat monotonous a lot of the time, but I think the host and there's three of them, there seems to be two who are there consistently and one who's intermittent do a really good job of making it entertaining. And it's a pretty relaxed show. It's pretty laid back. They joke around, they have a laugh. It's very, um, I mean, it's what you'd expect from a podcast with a, a group of Australians, and it's very entertaining. <laughs> and while I'm listening, I'm also learning things. So I think it's a really good mix, and it's a nice podcast, and it's not about technology, so that's also a nice change. Uh, and I've really been enjoying that. So I've, mm. I've subscribed, and I will probably be listening to future episodes as they come out. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that's also why our podcast is so strict and structured, because we're not three Australians. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're pretty relaxed. It's fine. <laughs> Have we ever stuck to the topic list? Maybe once or twice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my pick or my thing I like thing is um, a HomeKit accessory, actually. And that's oh. the iDevices Switch. Um, oh, that's a good idea. Mm. I like this. So, uh, in general, we, we do have a decent amount of, of um, smart... HomeKit devices in our home. Um, and we used to have, a, um, what are they called? Philips Hue lights and Yi lights, uh, smart LED bulbs. But the problem with smart LED bulbs is always that uh, they tend to only be available as 60 watt replacements, but not 100 watt uh, um, replacements. Considering that I don't like um, living in a cave or something that looks like a cave, I, I want LED bulbs that have more than 60 uh, that are more than a 60 watt equivalent more in the realm of 100 watt or more um, at least for kind of the environments like that, that need a lot of light like living rooms and, and kitchens and hallways and those kind of things 
Um, and there are not a lot of options for that. So uh, the workaround for us, at least, is to use a HomeKit-enabled switch that you plug the light into, and then you just turn the switch on and off. Um, and what we're using for that is the iDevices switch. It is, rel- it, at least when I bought it, it was relatively affordable, somewhere in the $40 range. Um, and it does exactly what you want turn it on and off it also does some more advanced features so it does like energy monitoring so you can see based on your electricity price how much the accessory costs you for for having it on or things like um when when you tend to have it on and off it's not super relevant for us because there's only a uh basically one lamp plugged into it and i know uh, pretty much exactly how much how much energy it uses so it's not super interesting for this particular use case but if you have any others it's quite interesting to see energy consumption um, but also if I mean if you want to spend less than $40 there's also Ikea just updated their uh, Troll 3 series with the HomeKit and I think that one uh, Ikea's um, smart switch uh, is I think $15 somewhere between 10 and 15 it's very very inexpensive for a home kit accessory so that might also be a good way of of adding home kit accessories to uh i think even their their light bulbs are now home kit enabled so it's also a very affordable way of adding more home kit accessories to the house if that is something uh people might want to do yeah i really like it mm. the only downside is that it makes a clicking noise yeah when you turn it on and off. And off. And you, you, I mean, if you have, I mean, super, super picky, but if you have uh, something like a Yee light or a Philips Hue, when you turn on the light, you also get like a nice fade because it fades from, from 0% to, to, to on. So you got a nice transition when it turns on. Well, when you use a switch, it's like a switch. It's on or off. Um, but I... I decided that it's worth the trade-off to have proper light in the house instead of having a fade. Mm. Awesome. That was a pretty good mix of different picks. Mm. Um, there's definitely a theme in here, we can tell. Um, I don't really have to go through it. It's it's just like the airplane theme. Yeah, yeah, something like that. You can use a bit.ly link to buy HomeKit products after you've budgeted for them by listening to my millennium. See, that's see? exactly the, perfect. The, the theme we were talking about. Yeah. 